Welcome to the Field of Church podcast. Our church inhales and exhales the gospel every Sunday and is excited to bring our messages to you here. Thank you for joining us and we hope God moves in your life as you listen into this feed. Hey guys, so grateful for this opportunity to share God's word with you. And right now, if you're watching this, you might be at the Pioneer campus, you might be at the Grand Prairie campus, you might be at the South Oaks campus, or you might be a part of our online campus. And I'm just grateful for this chance for me to get to speak to the whole church body this morning and get to speak some vision and direction that God has placed on my heart through God's Word. So thank you for the opportunity to share God's Word with you. I want to start with a, a quick question for you. H- have you ever done anything crazy before? Now, I know, I know some of you watching, I know your stories, and I don't mean that kind of crazy. Some of you have done some crazy, but it's not the good kind of crazy. I mean, have you ever done something crazy for Jesus? Have you ever done something that was just such a bold step of faith that it was It was hard. It was unnerving. It was wild and adventurous, maybe even a little bit dangerous. You ever taken a faith step like that before? Because if you have, you know that coming up to that cliff when you're ready to jump, it is so hard to take that kind of step of faith. I just got back from being in Seattle this past weekend. I was at the launch of Discovery Church. Now, if you've been a part of Fielder, you know about this church. A couple of years ago, we sent the college pastor out to the Seattle area where he could go begin to form a team to start a church that we would launch. Well, we launched that this past Sunday. I was so grateful to get to be there in the service and get to see Kevin and Rebecca Gibbs, who are the the church planners who are leading in this. But I also had an incredible opportunity to, to spend some time with the six families that went up there with the Gibbs. And their stories were phenomenal. It was incredible to hear their faith because, to be honest with you, no one expected it to go this particular way. Here are six families that have uprooted their lives. I mean, they left everything. They left their jobs, their, their friend network, their family. They, they left everything they've ever known, loving churches. And they picked up and they went up to the Northwest to take the good news of the gospel of Jesus there, not knowing what was going to happen. I mean, they, they didn't know anybody there. They didn't have, all, they didn't have jobs lined up. They didn't have places to live. They were going to figure it all out. But they just decided to pack everything in a U-Haul and just to get up and go walk up right to the edge of the cliff and jump off. And I was so taken by their faith, these heroes of the faith who were saying, I want to go for the sake of planting a church. But what was so intriguing to me is to hear their faith in the middle of the hardship because it has been exceptionally hard. I mean, none of them, when they got up and went, were thinking COVID-19 would be in the mix of this and, and they were going to try to plant a church in the middle of this. I mean, how hard is it to plant a church anyway, much less in the middle of a pandemic when people don't even go out of their homes? And it's been so difficult because they've gone there and it's been hard to have conversations with people and it's been lonelier and more isolated than they anticipated. Many of them, because of COVID, they had job offers that had to be rescinded. And so they went up there without even a job. They had places they were going to live and they found out they weren't able to live in those places. And it's been a lot lonelier and harder than they anticipated. But what's been so amazing is that every single one of them has said, yet still we see the hand of God. We don't regret coming up here because God is moving. And as I was listening to their faith and just talking to them about their stories, what struck me was that they all had a commonality to them. There was something that had compelled all of them to get up and to go. There were were two things common to all their stories. They would all say, the reason why we came is because we believe God can use us to bring the gospel to the Seattle area. God can use us to change people's eternities. They wanted to be a blessing to the people of Seattle. But the second thing that every single one of them believed, what built their faith is that they believed that in going They were going to experience an adventure with God, and they were going to have a blessing turned back on them. I remember when Betty Marvin was here with us, one of the the team members who went up there, 
83 years old, not too long ago, widowed, and she decided to go up there. And her reason for going, she told us, was that she, she never wants to miss an adventure with God. And I noticed in every single one of the team members, they saw these two things. They, they wanted to be a blessing for others because they believed in doing so, an even greater blessing would come upon them. They saw it as a win-win. And, and here's what I've discovered. I've discovered that for you and I, when we come to that same conclusion, that same win-win attitude, when we realize we were created by God to bless others and that in blessing others, we receive an even greater blessing, that's when we embark upon the wildest journeys of faith imaginable. That's when we start to get bold and dangerous. That's when we start to live into this kind of faith, when we know we should bless others because we're gonna be even more blessed in it. This morning, we're gonna hear a story of a man of faith who realized that and therefore took a bold step of faith as we continue on in this sermon series called Living the Dream. But this morning, we're gonna focus not on Joseph, who's been the main point of focus for so long. We're gonna focus on his daddy, Jacob. It's found in the book of Genesis, chapter 46. So open your Bibles, if you will, to Genesis 46. We're gonna cover a couple of chapters this morning, taking it bit by bit. But before we jump in, real quick recap of what's going on. So last week, we had a really huge discovery whenever Joseph now has revealed to his brothers who he is. The brothers had seen this guy, the second highest in the land of Egypt, had no clue it was their brother Joseph, the one that they had sold into slavery some 20-something years before. He reveals it to them, and when they finally wake up from the shock, they embrace and reconcile, and then the brothers decide to go back to the land of Canaan where their father Jacob is. And they tell Jacob, Daddy, guess what? Your son Joseph is still alive, and he's a second in command in the land of Egypt. And when Jacob gets off the floor from his shock, he decides he's going to go to the land of Egypt to see his son Joseph. And that's where we jump into the story. So read with me, beginning in verse 1 of Genesis 46. It says, So Israel took his journey with all that he had, and he came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Now stop there just for a second. All right, so it comes the time. Now Jacob is setting out. He's heading to the land of Egypt, but apparently he's afraid, and God has to meet him in Beersheba and speak with him. And you go, well, how do you know he's afraid? Well, it says right here that God says to him, don't be afraid, Jacob. Now I believe there's a reason why Jacob is afraid. It's because Jacob knows that waiting for him on the other side of Egypt is an intense amount of affliction and trouble. He knows what's coming because there was a prophecy given to his granddaddy, Abraham, some 215 years before this moment. In fact, keep your place in Genesis 46, but skip back to Genesis 15. In Genesis 15, God is giving the covenant to Abraham, and he tells Abraham a prophecy of what's going to come. In verses 13 and 14, listen to what it says. It says, then the Lord said to Abram, and by the way, Abram is just another name for Abraham. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. So he says, Abraham, there's going to come a descendant of yours, and that's going to be, it's going to be enslaved. It's going to struggle for 400 years. They're going to have affliction, but don't worry. They're going to come out even stronger on the other end. Now, Abraham would have passed this prophecy on to his son Isaac, who would have passed that prophecy on to his son Jacob. And now here's Jacob, and he's leaving the, the land of Israel, and he's heading down to the promised land, or excuse me, to Egypt. And he knows that it's going to be the place of affliction. He knows that everything is going to fall apart over there, which to, you might go, well, I mean, how do we know that's what's going on here? How, how do we know he's just not going to Egypt for a visit, expecting to go back to the land 
of Canaan, the, the promised land. Well, the reason we know he doesn't expect to go back is because he takes everything with him. He doesn't leave anything back in the promised land. In fact, as we keep on reading the story, verses 5 through 27, you're going to see that he doesn't leave a speck of dust back in the land of Canaan. Every bit comes with him. Now, before we read these verses, let me go ahead and forewarn you. There's a whole lot of names. It's going to get kind of crazy, but there's a reason why it's all in there. He's trying to show the clean break he makes with the promised land. Let's jump in. Verse 5. It says, Then Jacob, by the way, Jacob and Israel are just the same person. This is interchangeable names. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, their little ones and their wives in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. And they also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt. Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. Now these are the names of the descendants of Israel who came into Egypt, Jacob and his sons. Now what he's going to do, he's going to list them one by one and tell all the sons and their children that came with him. Reuben, Jacob's firstborn. And the sons of Reuben, Hanak, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. The sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shual, the son of a Canaanite woman. The sons of Levi, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. The sons of Judah, by the way, we've heard the sons of Judah, Ur, Onan, Shelah, Perez, and Zerah. If you don't remember Perez and Zerah, go back and read the story. And it says, but Ur and Onan died in the land of Canaan. And the sons of Perez were Hezron and Hamul. And the sons of Issachar, Tola, Puva, Job, and Shimron. The sons of Zebulun, Sered, Elon, and Jalil. And these are the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob and Padan Aram, together with his daughter Dinah. Altogether, his sons and his daughters numbered 33. So we have 33 now from Leah. Now, there were four people that, that Jacob was married to. You had the two wives and the two concubines. So we've done Leah. Now we're going to keep on going. Verse 16. The sons of Gad, Ziphion, Hagi, Shuni, Esbon, Eri, Erodi, and Areli. The sons of Asher, Imna, Ishva, Ishvi, Bari. By the way, don't name your kids Imna, Ishva, Ishvi. I can just imagine the Imna, Ishvi, you, you there, come over here. It's going to be really hard to keep track of their names, but, but for whatever reason, Asher did it. Imna, Ishva, Ishvi, Bariah, and Sarah, their sister, and the sons of Bariah, Heber, and Malkiel. And these are the sons of Zilpah, whom Laban gave to Leah, his daughter. And these she bore to Jacob, 16 persons. So now we're up to 49. Keep on going. The sons of Rachel, Jacob's wife, Joseph, and Benjamin. And to Joseph in the land of Egypt were born Manasseh and Ephraim, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, the priest of On, bore to him. And the sons of Benjamin, by the way, Benjamin was exceptionally prolific. Sons of Benjamin, Bela, Betcher, Ashbel, Jera, Naaman, Ehi, Rosh, Muppam, Huppam, and Ard. I'm going to name my kids Muppam and Huppam because those are awesome names. These are the names that he gave them. And these are the sons of Rachel who were born to Jacob, 14 persons in all. So now we're up to 63. And then it says, verse 23, the sons of Dan, Hushim, and the sons of Naphtali, Jazil, Guni, Jezer, and Shelem. And these are the sons of Bilhah, whom Laban gave to Rachel, his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, seven persons in all. All the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt, were, who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's sons' wives, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph, who were born to him in Egypt, were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. Now stop there. I know your eyes are all crossed over from these names and you're impressed by how I pronounce them. You have no clue whether I pronounce them right or not. We're going to keep it that way. Let's just imagine I pronounced them all right. But there's a reason why he listed all these names. Why go through this big list? Because he's trying to show the number 70. The number 70 in Hebrew was a very important number. It was a number of completion, entirety. What it meant is that he didn't leave anybody back in the promised land. He took every single one of the living beings, every single one of the family with him. He's making a clean break. 
Back in verse 5 and 6, he said the same thing. They took the father, the little ones, wives, put them in wagons, their livestock, all their possessions, and they left the promised land. Now, that's a really important point because what this is showing us is that Jacob is saying, I'm not holding ground in the promised land. I'm abandoning everything to go to Egypt, even though he believed the promised land was still his inheritance. Which you're going, well, if he believes that's inheritance, then why is he going to Egypt? Well, the reason you know it is because at the end of chapter 47, you see Jacob say, but I want my bones back in Israel or back in the, the promised land. Flip over to chapter 47. Look at verses 29 and 31. It says, and when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, if now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in the burying place, in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you've said. And he said, swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. So he says, don't leave my bones here. Put them back where my fathers are buried, which is back in the land of Canaan, back in the promised land. Because he's saying, I know that's still my inheritance. Now, let me tell you the spiritual truth here, because this is huge. He's saying, God, I believe my blessing is in Canaan, but by faith, I'm going to leave that blessing, believing that you're going to bring it back to me. And there's a whole sermon right there in that biblical truth. There are times when God wants to bless us, but the only way he can bless us is if we give up that blessing, trusting that God will bring an even greater blessing in his place. That's the faith step that Jacob was taking. But Jacob knew how dangerous it was to go to Egypt. He knew affliction was coming. He knew he was wagering on his God and he was afraid. And that's why God has to meet him in Beersheba. And God says to him, don't be afraid. In fact, I want us to look back at verses three and four in Genesis 46, because I believe that God's words of encouragement for Jacob can be words of encouragement for you, especially if there's a faith step God is asking you to take. Look at verses three and four. This is God. He says, then God said, I am God, the God of your fathers. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt for I, I for there I will make you in a great nation and I myself will go down with you to Egypt. And I, I will also bring you up again and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. He says, don't be afraid to go for two reasons. One, I'm going to be with you. I'll go with you, Jacob. You're not going to be alone. And two, because I'm going to make you great in the land of Egypt because I'm going to bless you. This was a huge promise that God was giving to Jacob. It's a promise that's actually really similar to a promise he gave to his granddaddy Abraham. Again, this is, the wording is strikingly similar to Genesis chapter 12. So again, keep your place in Genesis 46 and flip over to Genesis chapter 12. Look at verses 1 and 3. Because in a very similar scenario, God tells Abraham, I want you to go to a different land and listen to what he says to him. Chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, which is another name for Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So he says to Abraham, get up and go to the land. He knows Abraham is afraid to leave everything behind. He says, get up and go. And he says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you great. I'm going to make your name great. This is the very same promise that he's making over in Genesis 46. He's reiterating the promise to Jacob that he had made to Abraham 215 years before. He says, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to make you great. Go. 
But Jacob knew that there was a greater level of this blessing than, than right here because Abraham, when he had received this promise from God, he passed it on to his son Isaac who passed it on to his son Jacob. So Jacob knew that he was gonna be made great, but the purpose behind that greatness was so that he could be a blessing. Remember what it says. God said to Abraham, I'm gonna make you great so that you will be a blessing. And he says, I'm gonna bless those who bless you and in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Now Jacob knew this was God's greater plan. So when God says to him right here, I'm gonna make you great in the land of Egypt, Jacob knew there was a purpose behind that. He was making him great so that Jacob could be a blessing to all the nations, even Egypt. And Jacob's about to be tested on that. Will he choose to be a blessing even to Pharaoh, even to Egypt? And as we continue on the story, we're gonna see he struggled a little bit with it. So picking back up in Genesis chapter 46, verse 28, listen to what comes next. It says, he had sent Judah, <clears throat> talking about Jacob, had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. And he presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. And Israel said to Joseph, now let me die since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. Now stop there for a second. So here now is Ju Jacob, and he hasn't seen his son Joseph in so long. It's been 20, 25 years or so since he's seen his son Joseph, thought he was dead. And now he gets to see him face to face. And all Jacob can say is, you can take me now, Lord. I finally got the blessing I've been looking for all these years. Jacob has been incredibly blessed by his God to see his son Joseph, and he's ready to go. But God doesn't let him go. Because remember, God chose to bless Jacob so that Jacob would be a blessing. And Jacob still needed to step into that. And you're going to see him forced to do so in the next few verses. So we keep on going in the story. Verse 31. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and say to him, my brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds for they have been keepers of livestock and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. And when Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen. For every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Now, by the way, that little point right there that every shepherd is an abomination is going to be important because that means that Jacob, who is a sheep herder, a father of sheep herders and shepherds, he's going to stand before the Pharaoh and he knows he's an abomination to the Pharaoh. That's going to make it even harder for him to try to be a source of blessing. But he does it as we keep on going. Chapter 47, verse 1. So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, My father and my brothers with their flocks and herds and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan, and they're now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to his brothers, well, What's your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, Your servants are shepherds as our fathers were. And they said to Pharaoh, We have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you are, and know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. Then Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and stood him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, how many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. And they've not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses. 
as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food according to the number of their dependents. Now stop there. Did you notice this interchange? It was remarkable between Jacob and the Pharaoh. Now remember, Pharaoh is the most powerful man in the known world at the time. And Jacob is this unknown sheep herder, this abomination to the Egyptians, this lowly nobody. And here he is standing before the Pharaoh and he has the audacity to bless Pharaoh. Now listen, in any culture, but especially in the ancient culture, only the greater blessed the weaker or the lower. It was the king who blessed the subjects. It was the rich who blessed the poor. The greater blessed the lower. This meant that in blessing Pharaoh, Jacob was saying, I stand in a position of some kind of power above you and I choose to bless you. This was an incredibly bold move of Jacob to make. And and it makes me wonder, did Jacob, did he feel afraid in that moment? He was already afraid to go to Egypt in the first place. He had just been told he's an abomination to the Egyptians. And now here he is standing before the most important man in the world. I'm wondering if he's thinking like, what do I have to offer Pharaoh? Why would I ever bless Pharaoh? I don't have anything to give him. Which I actually, I want to, I want to time out there for a second. I, I want to speak to those of you watching. I think there are a lot of you right now and you're listening to this and you struggle with the same problem. You, you hear me say, God has called you to bless others. God has called you to go and serve others. And you're going, what do I have to bless somebody else with? I got so many problems myself. I need help. How am I going to help others? I mean, I, I don't come from much money. I don't, I don't know a lot about the Bible. I, I'm not smart enough to counsel people. I don't have any achievements to help people with. I'm as ordinary as they come or less than. How in the world am I ever going to bless somebody else? And, and there are many of you, you're, you're not leading a D group because you don't think you can mentor somebody because you, you don't have anything to offer. You're not even mentoring a kid with kids though because you're going, dude, I, I, I've screwed up my own kids. I don't want to mess up somebody else's kids. You're going, I, I don't have anything to offer. You couldn't conceive of going to be on a church planning team somewhere because you couldn't do anything like that. And you're looking in the mirror going, what could I ever offer anybody else? Listen, if you're feeling that, please hear me. I think the Lord wants to say this to you. There are things God has designed you to do, ways he's designed you to be that only you can do and be. God created you perfectly. He made no mistake when he made you. He didn't let your circumstances happen to you for no reason. He has a purpose because he wants to use you. And there are certain people in this world that only you can bless. There are certain things in this world that only you can do. God has lovingly and perfectly designed you for you to bless others. And listen, every time you think that you can't be a blessing, you probably don't even realize this, but what you're saying is that you're so messed up, you're so inadequate, that not even almighty God of the universe can use you. You're too far gone. Guys, let's not insult our God that way. God can use anyone to do anything he wants. In fact, the more inadequate you are, the more glory God gets for it. This past week, I was reading through 2 Corinthians, and Paul says it again and again. He says, God uses the weak to shame the strong, the foolish to shame the wise. God uses what is inadequate to show his adequacy, not our adequacy. So all your inabilities, all your shortcomings are a a greater reason for God to get glory through you. I mean, that was the story of Jacob. Here's this abomination, this nobody, and he stands before Pharaoh, and he chooses to bless him because he knows his God can bless Pharaoh. And what you're about to see as we keep on reading is what happens when somebody 
speaks a blessing of Almighty God upon somebody else, they receive a blessing that only God can give. And that's exactly what happens as we keep going in the story. Reading in verses 13 and on in chapter 47, here's what it says. It says, Now there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. And Joseph answered, Okay, give your livestock, and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock if your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. And he supplied them with food, with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. And when that year was ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, we will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. The herds of livestock are my Lord's. There's nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food, and we and our land will be servants to Pharaoh, and give us seed that we may live and not die, and that the land may not be desolate. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them, and the land became Pharaoh's. And as for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on that allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And at the harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four fifths shall be your own, as seed for the field, and as food for yourselves and your households, and as food for your little ones. And they said, You have saved our lives. May it please my Lord. We will be servants to Pharaoh. So Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt, and it stands to this day that Pharaoh should have a fifth. The land of the priests alone did not become Pharaoh's. So, so get this now. It's been just a, a few, just a couple of years, and at this point, after Jacob speaks a blessing over Pharaoh, Pharaoh now owns everything. He owns all the money. He owns all the lands, all the livestock, even all the people. And get this, the people are happy about it. It says, they said, you have saved our lives. They're happy that Pharaoh owns them. Talk about blessing. Pharaoh couldn't have ever conceived of this kind of blessing that would come from Jacob speaking a blessing over him. But what Pharaoh is experiencing is God keeping his promise to Abraham 215 years before. When God said to Pharaoh, I will bless those, or when God said to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Pharaoh is realizing what happens when God keeps his promises. And he's experiencing this abundant grace of the power of the God of the universe, Yahweh God. But here's what's so incredible about this story. Here you have Jacob blessing Pharaoh and Pharaoh receiving this incredibly huge blessing. But at the end of the story, the one who receives even more blessing is Jacob himself. As he blesses Pharaoh, more blessing comes back to him. So let's finish up the story in verses 27 and 28 in Genesis 47. Here's what it says. It says, Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it and were fruit fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. So it says that at the end of the day, here's Jacob and he's worked to bless Pharaoh and in return for that, he gets blessed immeasurably more than he was before. He was in the land of Canaan and they had some fields. Now they're in the land of Goshen. It's the best of the land of Egypt and they have plenty of room for all their flocks to feed and all their family to spread out. And it says they gain tons of possessions. They are getting richer and richer and it says they are fruitful and they multiply. 
within this 400 year period that they're in Egypt, they go from this tiny little tribe of 70 people to a nation of millions by the time they leave under Moses to go back to the promised land. God blesses them immensely. And as Pharaoh is blessed and as they blessed Egypt, they get more and more blessing for themselves. And I think there's this incredible principle that you and I can learn from this whole thing. What we can learn is what I said at the very beginning, that when we live for the blessing of others, more blessing comes back upon us. That our greatest blessing is found not in pursuing blessing for ourselves, but pursuing blessing for others. Because when we bless them, we find ourselves even more blessed. That's why Jesus says it's more blessed to give than to receive. That's why we look out for the interests of others before ourselves. What we do for others, what we would want them to do for us. Because when we live that way for them, even more blessing comes upon us. But listen, that's totally counterintuitive. That, that's not the way we typically think. You know, we, we need this book to explain that to us because typically our sin nature is I'm going to accumulate for myself. If I want to be blessed, i got to cut out the middleman. I don't need God in this thing. I'll just pursue blessing for myself. That seems wisest to us. And yet faith tells us, and this book tells us, that no, that's not the way because we don't even know how to bless ourselves. God knows how to bless us more, and we will trust him and we'll seek the blessing of others, God will take charge of blessing us. And that blessing will be more than we could ever even imagine. The question is, will we receive that by faith? You know, I'm so amazed by this team that went up to Seattle because I see them living this out. I see them recognizing their greatest blessing is coming, even in the middle of the hardship and the difficulty of taking this faith step, of living for the blessing of the people in Seattle. So I got to sit with them around the house and just hear some of their stories and pray with them. And some of the things I told you earlier in the service, they're, they're true, that they've suffered immensely. There's a lot of affliction that they couldn't have ever conceived of. They didn't know that COVID was going to happen. They didn't know the hardships that were going to take place. They didn't know they weren't going to have their apartment. They, they didn't realize how cold people would be in a time of COVID. They didn't realize many of them would have babies and they would feel all alone, not have their family support system with them. They wouldn't have the income and they're, they're struggling through this, trying to plant a church. And, and it's been very, very hard for them to go through all this. And they feel the weight and the press of it. They didn't lie. And they realized it could get harder before they see any fruit from this church. But every single one of them told me without fail, they do not regret at all going to Seattle. And here was the reason they said. They said, we know that God is building us just as much as he's building a church. We know that God is blessing us because he's showing us his power right now and we're better for it. None of them regrets going up there. Every single one of them said, we are so glad we came and we can't wait to see what God does. What they're realizing is that even in the hardship, even in the According to Jacob, 400 years of affliction and difficulty, even in the middle of things not going the way we would want them, God is do, he's going to do miracles in us. He's going to show us his power. He's going to do his greatest work, and his greatest work is inside of us. When we work for the blessing of others, God works to bless us by changing us and growing us and showing us his infinite power when we trust him. It's a win-win when we walk according to his way instead of our own way. So my question for you is, do you believe that? Are you willing to take that kind of radical step of faith? Because I believe God is calling some of you to a step of faith and you're struggling with it. You're like Jacob. You're afraid to go. You're saying, listen, I, I don't know if I should go there. I know affliction is waiting for me. It's going to be hard. And you're stuck in Beersheba right now. Not sure if you should go. And God is speaking to you saying, don't be afraid. Look, I know right now you're, you're wondering, should I, should I adopt this child or not? Should I go into, the, into foster parenting or not? And I'm afraid because I know it could be harder than, than I expected and I don't know if I should do it or not. And you're afraid. 
Maybe God is telling you that he's calling you to start a ministry and you're scared to death of how much it may cost and how much time it may take in you and, and you don't know if you have the energy to give to it and you're scared. Maybe God's telling you to volunteer somewhere or to serve some way. Maybe God is saying to you, you're supposed to be a part of a church planning team to go up with the Gibbs in the Seattle area, to go with the Hawks in San Diego, to go somewhere else. And you're saying, I don't know. I don't know if I could do this. I don't know if I have the skills to do this. I don't know. And you're scared. And God is wanting to say to you right now, don't be afraid. I'll be with you. And trust me, I'll bless you. I'll make life great in my way. Even if it's not your way, even if it's hard, I'll show you my power. Will you trust me? Listen, maybe, maybe, maybe Jacob's story isn't enough. Maybe you're going, okay, I, I hear that, but, but I'm still afraid. Well, listen, if you're still afraid, I want you to know Jacob's story points to a much greater story. A much greater story of somebody who had to walk in something that was even more terrifying than Jacob had to walk into. But it was actually a descendant of Jacob. Somebody uh, that would come from his line, a Messiah, and he would have the same kind of moment, except his moment wouldn't happen in Beersheba. His moment would happen in the Garden of Gethsemane. He would walk into this garden not wanting to go through on this journey, knowing that there was a great affliction that awaited him, but it wasn't 400 years of servitude in the land of Egypt. It was a place where he would walk into a cross and have to bear the sins of all humanity upon him. And he would have to be separated from his father that he'd been with for all eternity. And he didn't want his sinless body to take that weight upon him. He didn't want to be separated from his father. And Jesus looked up to heaven and said, God, if, Daddy, if there's any way for this cup to pass for me, let it pass. I don't want to do this. I'm afraid to go forward with this because I don't know the pain of sin upon me. I don't know what it'll feel like to be separated from you. And then Jesus said, but God, I trust you. Daddy, I trust you. Not my will, your will be done. If this is the way, God, I got to do it. I'll do it. And Jesus chose to walk to the cross Nothing for himself. He didn't need the cross. He didn't need sins to atone for. He didn't need to be reconciled to his father. He didn't need to have anything new for him. He did it purely for you and for me to bless us. He was living for our blessing. And he said, Daddy, I trust you. If this is how you want me to bless them, I'll do it. And because he took that step of faith, three days later, the resurrection happened. And one day, every single one of us knows that every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, the glory of God the Father. Jesus believed it was going to be worth it, that more blessing would come upon him when he lived for the blessing of others. And Jesus says, I've shown you what it means to trust the Father. Would you trust me enough to do it too? I believe there are some of you watching this right now. And you've just never come to that place of faith to say, God, I trust you. I trust you with my life. There are some of you, and you know Jesus is calling you to come obey him and to follow him and to serve him, but you're scared. What's it going to cost? What's God going to make me give up? How's my life going to change? Am I ready? Am I even good enough for this? And here's what the Father is saying to you. Trust me. Just confess your sin. Confess your wrongdoing. Jesus paid for it on the cross. Just confess it. And then live for my son Jesus Give your life to him, serve him, trust him. I know it may not always make sense to you. Sometimes it may even be difficult, but trust me, when you live for his glory, live for the sake of others' good, I'll heap in even more blessing upon you than you could even imagine. Just gotta trust me. Listen, there's a line where there comes a moment you gotta step over that by faith and say, I repent. No, Jesus, I give you control of my life. I trust you, save me. If you need to take that step, we want to partner with you. 
So whether you're in one of our services right now or you're watching this online, you can take that step by reaching out to us simply by going to filler.org slash next step. Or, or if you have your phone with us, with you, you can text the word next step to 94253, just like you see it right there on the screen. And when you go there, there's a quick form that just lets us know how we can minister to you. You may be ready to follow Christ. You can just indicate that. Maybe you need prayer for something in your life. Maybe you need a pastor just to counsel with. Whatever it may be, we want to reach out to you. And what will happen when you fill that out is, is a pastor will call you and will just talk to you and figure out how we can serve you and counsel with you and help you take the step of faith, whatever it may be. But don't miss this opportunity, please. During the, the song that we sing in a moment, that, that same little screen will be on there with the next step, 94253, and the website you can visit so that you can take that step. But don't miss this opportunity, please. The Lord is ready to move in you if you'll walk in faith. But let me also say this. In a moment, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. And there are some of you right now, you're believers. You've already taken that faith step. But God is saying to you, I've got a journey for you. I've got a wild adventure for you. I've got a step of faith I want you to take. But you're going, I'm scared to take the step of faith. You already know what it is. And you already know that it's a dangerous step of faith. And you know the cost of it. And God is saying to you, will you trust me enough to take this faith step? Will you do this? Will you put on the table your yes? We talk about this at Fielder all the time. You've got to put your yes on the table and slide it across to the Lord. Are you willing this morning to say before Almighty God, yes. Yes, I'll go where you tell me to go. Yes, I'll do what you tell me to do. Yes, I'll sacrifice what you tell me to sacrifice. I don't understand how this is going to work out, but I believe, God, that you will bless me when I walk in obedience and live for the blessings of others. Maybe you already know what it is. Maybe you have no clue what it is. The greatest step of faith you can take is to say, God, I don't know what you want me to do, but yes, I slide it across to you. In a moment, we're going to take the Lord's Supper after this next song. And when we take the Lord's Supper, we're going to look at the sign, the symbol of this faith step. The Lord's Supper is a picture of what Jesus did when he said yes to the Father. I will bleed and die for my people. But before we take that, we as people of faith have to be willing to say yes. You may need to, right there, if you're in your living room, get on the floor. If you're in one of the worship services, maybe you need to bow down where you are or go to one of the steps and say, God, I give this to you. My yes is to you. Whatever you need to do, prepare your heart. But say yes to the Lord. I trust you. And when you're done with that moment, with that wild adventure of saying yes, then we'll gather back together and we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper. But now as you prepare to worship, get your heart ready.